Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm honored to have as my conversation partner today, Zachary Wagner. He's an ordained minister and the editorial director for the Center for Pastor Theologians, and has recently come out with a compelling and insightful book called Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. I just finished reading this last week, and it prompted a lot of questions and some soul searching, and I think I think some hope for me as well. So, Zachary, mm. thank you so much for joining us on the conversation today. Yeah, great to be with you, Steve. Thanks so much for the invite. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Zachary, this is it's a thoughtful book, but it's also intensely personal. Tell us a little bit about how how this project was born. Yeah, two streams. I'm getting this question a lot. I'm working on trying to kind of streamline it. I don't know if I've gotten there yet, so we'll see. Uh, But two kind of streams of narrative that led to the writing of the book. The first is the broader cultural conversation around Me Too beginning in 2016, and then also the Church Too movement that launched in, not immediately in tandem, but not long afterwards, uh, led by uh, Emily Joy Allison and, and some others kind of got that going highlighting the reality of sexual violence and abuse in Christian spaces, communities, institutions, churches. Uh, And then in early 2021, really, it came to a head for me in terms of my observation of these different patterns. A few just really, really hard news stories broke, at least in my processing of them. Uh, Ravi Zacharias and everything uh, surrounding his ministry uh, that was coming out right around his death. Um, the Bill Hybels stuff at, at Willow Creek Community Church was also uh, fairly recent and still being processed a little bit, as well as the Southern Baptist Convention expose in the Houston Chronicle that listed out hundreds of instances of cover-up and abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And then also this uh, spa shootings in Atlanta that happened early in 2021. And that in particular stuck with me. And you could even say like my, my heart and my soul and my body was, was uniquely disturbed by that because in the aftermath of this shooting, this guy had gone a lot uh, around to different massage parlors in the Atlanta area and killed eight people, mostly women of East Asian descent. And when he was being questioned by the police afterwards, he, as to his motive, he said that he was targeting these women because he was a sex addict and he was trying to eliminate his temptation. And it come to find that this guy in the coverage in the next couple of days was a baptized member of a Southern Baptist church in the area. Um, and I don't want to beat up unfairly on Southern Baptist. This is a much bigger issue than just uh, Southern Baptist churches. But um and uh, had been involved in he had been involved in the youth ministry as recently as a year before, and that really disturbed me as I was processing it because I realized this idea that women are a temptation hmm. and a barrier to a man's relationship with with God or his faithful walk or something like that, even though this guy had carried this to a certain logical. Uh, twisting in an extreme where he was literally murdering women. Uh, the basic logic underneath it felt eerily familiar to me in terms mm. of some of the messaging that I had received growing up in rhetoric and 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 books and all on manner of things. So that set me on a new 
trajectory, I think, uh, even more so in how I was thinking about uh, male sexuality and the messages that I had grown up with. So that's long. Like I said, this is a long answer. Stream number one is this broader cultural conversation. Stream number two is my personal experience. I grew up uh, much in every way under the influence of purity culture, as it's sometimes called today. I read all the books. My youth ministry that I was involved in in junior high and high school was very committed to the, the tenets of purity culture. And we had purity events and purity nights and purity retreats and the whole thing. Uh, focusing around sex and sexuality. Um, and like many young people, uh, young men, uh, as well as women in my generation, I was having early experiences with pornography and masturbation in early in my, in my teen years. The onset of high-speed internet, then smartphones made for uh, a unique challenge, I think, that a lot of young people, as well as the people who were trying to disciple them, um, and raise them were not not prepared for. So that was a that alongside all this purity culture rhetoric that I was receiving uniquely combined into a pretty intense cycles of shame for me in my teen years. Um, fast forward then to uh, just after college when my then girlfriend, now wife Shelby and I were dating. We you know quote unquote followed the rules. We we were good and part of the narrative that we had grown up around was this idea that if you live according to God's plan, it will lead to a free and flourishing intimate life in uh, merit in marriage after the fact. If you wait, it you will be blessed in this way uh, in your future life. Well, eventually we did get married and we didn't sleep together until we did. Um, but we found almost immediately that this aspect of our marriage was a struggle. It was not working. It was not coming together in the way that we had been led to believe it would. Partially on my side, it was a function of the continued burden of shame that I was carrying from this narrative that I had grown up with and my cycles of shame around pornography and masturbation. And then for my wife, Shelby, we weren't thinking about it in these terms of the time, but through a long process further into our marriage, we came to understand and find out that she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, uh, church-based sexual abuse, no less. And uh, these two things came together in such a way that um, it was it was a complete opposite of the narrative that we had been uh, led to understand about what marriage would be like, which led to some real frustration, struggle, um, but also some 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 growth and different things as we were talking about. So super long answer. Maybe one day I'll be able to tighten that up. But those are the two streams, the broader cultural conversation and then my personal experience in my life and marriage. That's super helpful, Zachary. And so I, I think I was probably in youth group maybe eight or 10 years before you were. So mm -hmm. I would maybe on the maybe on the front end of those particular yes. conversations. But it seems that it, in, in its origin, parents, youth pastors, senior pastors, cultural influencers, they were well-intentioned. Like extremely, it's, nobody extremely rolled out of bed and said like, hey, we're going to create a, a whole generation of dysfunctional evangelicals. Yes. Uh, so so the, the sense that I got was like, hey, we want good for you. We want good for your marriage. We want good for your soul and your mind and your body. Where did it, where did it get twisted? Yeah, a couple places. I talk about this in oh, one of the early chapters of my book, 
One, I trace a historical narrative of the purity movement, which I understand to be a subcultural movement in response to a broader cultural movement. So it is the way that predominantly white conservative evangelicals in the United States and that, you know, radiated out into other communities and other places around the world. The way those white conservative evangelicals responded to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and the rhetorical strategies and resources and all of this that they used to commend a traditional sexual ethic to their kids. And then I I go on in a, a further chapter to describe some of what I see as the lies even and unhelpful messages of the purity movement. A few that I can list here quickly. One is this idea that sexuality and your quote-unquote sexual purity is at the very center of what it means to be a godly person. This centering of sexuality where we actually reduce our humanity to just our sexuality. Uh, There's a preoccupation with women's bodies tend to be over-sexualized, as well as a preoccupation with men's minds we tend to over sexualize men's minds it seems to me right in in purity culture uh very often in ways that go far beyond anything that we see commended in scripture at, at least in my view and then it, it just unhelpfully narrows the frame of what it means to be a disciple what it means to be a godly person what it means to be a godly young man a godly adult man around these narrow sexual questions that's number one Uh, Number two, as I've already mentioned, it dehumanizes not just women. I think there's been a lot of rhetoric around the way purity culture, you know, intense regulation of women's clothing, uh, all the kind of onus of the sexual integrity of men and the community broadly being placed on women. And just, again, the over-sexualization of women's bodies. One of the things I try to argue in my book is that it also profoundly dehumanizes men. If women are sexual objects, men are almost like animals, sexual animals that can't act otherwise. It's taken this cultural narrative around, you know, men only think about one thing and we all know what that is and almost baptizes it and Christianizes it and then creates rather than commending a more humanized way of thinking about themselves and their sexuality almost confirms a hypersexualized vision of what it means to be male where men are just helplessly and hopelessly erotic in their way of approaching the world and the christian approach to that problem uh that you know every man's battle quote unquote becomes to create structures around men that kind of pen them in whether it's accountability right. structures or you know blocking software to kind of keep them contained until such a time as they become married and then the not so subtle implication sometimes is that they can then release all their animalistic urges on their partner in marriage right um and so that's another one and all of this both of these i think leave the door open to abuse in some pretty troubling ways and men are not by default thought of as moral agents who are responsible for their thought patterns and their ways of treating women. 
and all manner of things, uh, but instead are given a free pass to not just struggle with sexual sin, but when they do seriously harm another person or when they are wallowing in compulsive habits of just sexual lack of restraint, the women around them are often the ones who are on trial. It's it's such a profound thought. And I, I love the fact that you identify just, and again, I'm going to paraphrase here, but there is in the groundwater in the past and currently just this sense that like boys will be boys and men yes. will be boys. And, yes. you know, everybody's just got to figure out how to make do with that. And, and I love the fact that you say, no, that's A, that's not biblical. B, that's not gospel. C, that's not Christ-like. And it's just, we, we can do better. Talk about how you identify the fact that there's one thing to be able to say from the pulpit in a pastoral capacity, hey, these are common temptations. It's another one to inadvertently validate a life that is less than godly and less than holy. Yeah, it seems to me that the influence of Arter Bernard Stoiker's Every Man's Battle is really, really pronounced. And I did a number of interviews with men and some women in preparation to write this book, and I anonymize and tell some of their stories in the book itself. But every man's battle was this, this resource that came up again and again as I was talking to men. And almost the thesis of every man's battle is this idea that men, just because they are men, will inevitably struggle to maintain healthy, humanized ways of viewing other, other people, women in particular. And again, I think this is, and I, I should say, I think well-intentioned again, I, you know, like Stoiker and Arterburn aren't trying to malform young men into hypersexualized, you know, perpetual immaturity uh, by any means. But I do um, worry and I feel strongly that this baptizing of this broader animalistic um conception of masculinity while trying i think to avoid stigmatizing men and shaming them for being sexual creatures and we don't want men to feel bad just because they have sexual thoughts or anything like that but in framing this as quote every man's battle as a kind of christian version of boys will be boys that again leaves the door open for long entrenched patterns of immaturity and dehumanization. And one illustration I say in the book is, you know, it's one thing to say a lot of men or some percentage of men struggle with anger. That's a common struggle that some men face to have healthy ways of expressing uh, their frustration in certain situations and certain a certain percentage of men deal with containing outbursts of anger, let's just say. But then imagine if pastors in from the pulpit started to frame a not uncommon struggle that certain men will have with anger as then every man's battle. And we're saying things like, well, just because, you know, because we're we're guys, sometimes we get really angry and we scream and yell, and that's part of being a guy. But you know, what you got to be understanding is even though every guy struggles with this, you got to kind of keep it locked down. You're trying to commend a more holy way of living, but in the framing of it, 
as an essential part of masculinity, almost an inevitable part of masculinity. Um, I worry that that would then become a self-fulfilling prophecy where right. men feel a certain amount of license because they're men to right. act out in sinful anger. And I think that's exactly what's happened with lust and, and whatever you want to call it and immature expressions of male sexuality. No, I, I went, I used to work for a church, not all that terribly long ago where the pastor, and again, I think he was trying to identify credibility and common ground. It was a secret church mm -hmm. with, you know, men that were new and he would talk about his struggle with porn. And my father-in-law would come and visit my wife, Kelly and I, what, you know, twice a year. And he said, he goes, I hear this illustration every time I come. And he's like, is he making any progress in his journey? Like, and, and, wow. and to, to be able to say like, man, it, if we, in attempt to de-shame people or help yes. them work past some of that, we, we lower the bar for what God is inviting us to created us for and calling us towards, we can end up creating this double standard where we say, well, you probably shouldn't, but if you do, it's not a big deal because your pastor does it too. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about that. Give me um, one. One is that pastor confessing to a ongoing struggle with pornography is it's not fit to be a pastor that's not maybe that seems harsh i don't think it is i think it's just you know you wouldn't tolerate like a gambling compulsion in right. a pastor right and i think because of the way we've wedded our conception of masculinity to this battle and struggle with compulsive sexual uh, acting out in that way that's not Okay. And uh, it's not a sign of weakness to, as an elder board, as you as an individual, take a step back and just say, you know what, I need some help here. And right. we'll reevaluate your position uh, in, of leadership in the church. And But the most important thing is for you to grow up and create some healthy habits where you can then be an example to men. And, you know, I appreciate male pastors, I should say, being honest about their struggles and their imperfections. But pornography is a acting out in, here's what I'd say. How do you think women in the church feel hearing that? Right. What do they think that that does for their husbands who... I would imagine they do not want watching porn or feeling licensed to do that. Uh, I think some of these questions can be answered pretty easily if you just get outside of the kind of male-centric perspective in the church service and the church community and just think, what would it be like uh, to be a woman in this space right now? It's a great, that's a great question. Zachary, one of your quotes in the Learning to Love Reflections on Marital Sex chapter says this, toxic masculinity is all about male entitlement to power, space, freedom, preference, and pleasure. Unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to get at in that chapter is encouraging men to think about their way of sexually relating in this, you know, this, the chapter isn't narrowly about, or the book rather, isn't narrowly about marriage, but this chapter is, it is about marital sex, assuming a, a heterosexual man married to a woman framework. I want to encourage married men to think about holy sexuality as involving more 
than just am I remaining faithful to my wife? Are we only sleeping together? And am I kind of have my 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 lust towards other people on lockdown? I think that's, you know, that's a good baseline, I suppose. But we also need to think about how are we as husbands relating to our wives sexually um, and in a way that honors her, in a way that there's mutuality, in a way that's respecting her boundaries and her physical limits and her feelings and a way that uh, values um, her pleasure and her preferences and entering into conversation that is actually the mutuality that, in my view, sex and marriage is designed to be. That's what it was made for, not a outlet for the husband and, and a way that a wife services him, but about communion and coming together in a kind of dance, you might say, that is honoring to both of them. And I think there are many ways that even within a kind of by the book buttoned up marriage where on the the surface you'd say these people are being faithful to each other and living according to God's law, there can be uh, profound patterns of entitlement on either partner's part, but I'm focusing on the man's part as well as uh, dehumanizing patterns of behavior and attitudes towards the other person. Secretary, as I was reading your book, I was kind of jarred by the understanding that somebody could kind of graduate from youth group and enter marriage with technical virginity intact and kind of the purity culture all-star badge and still bring <laughs> sexual brokenness into a marriage. And I think that I th- that part of the purity culture hope was, hey, if we can keep people physically yes. pure, then we've got a clean slate when we go. And I hear you saying, I hear from stories of other people, I hear from stories in my own life and past that's that's not true. Uh, you can't you can't create a bubble where somebody's protected from all of the sexual brokenness, whether it's in body, mind, or spirit. That even those of us who kind of towed the purity culture line still brought sexual brokenness into our marriages. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the most important instance of this is, of course, for survivors of sexual abuse who don't choose their first sexual experiences in many cases, or their most impactful, I guess you could say, sexual experiences and the way that they, that it forms and shapes them. But I think purity culture participated in this, it's a human, it's a natural human desire for things to make sense and to be almost formulaic. Hmm. Um, in a way that's not dissimilar, I argue, to the for, to the prosperity gospel. You know, right. if you want prosperity, financial uh, success, or physical health, follow these three steps: donate X amount to your church or this pastor, and God will pay back that financial investment with an outpouring of blessing in the future. Um, I think purity culture wanted our sexuality and the world to be pretty formulaic. Follow Mm -hmm. this recipe and you will guarantee your best sex life later. And I think that's this cut and dry, black and white, 
way of viewing the world is an excess that I think conservative evangelicals can lean into in a variety of ways. And it certainly manifests in attitudes towards sexuality. The reality is in a broken world, there is no guaranteed avoidance of sexual suffering, I argue. Mm -hmm. And you can follow the script and still find yourself caring for any variety of reasons, a lot of wounds and brokenness and uncertainty and shame into your committed marriage relationship. That's just again and again, story that I find uh, for different people. And then another, you know, the flip side of this coin that sometimes makes us uncomfortable is the suffering and the fallout that was used as some sometimes scare tactics to kind of keep teenagers in line that also doesn't materialize in every in every case or maybe even most cases like the fact of the matter is that you know i have many friends and i know people and in as much as they i have invited me into you know knowing about their marriages you know there are plenty of people who have multiple sexual partners before they get married and then have perfectly healthy and happy marriages despite that. And including, um, you know, best I can tell good and functional intimate connections with their partners. And I think this is um, something we need to really wrestle with the, the complexity of the world. And if we are going to commend uh, not just to young people, but to ourselves and um, to our communities, certain traditional ways of thinking about sexuality. It can't just be God promises blessing in this direction and you're guaranteeing uh, profound suffering in this direction in a very immediate formulaic way. Yeah, because I, I think that you're right. Purity culture exercise both the carrot, like, hey, check these boxes yes, and you're guaranteed 100%. this kind of sexual experience and the stick, like which was kind of a a, a terrorizing of of adolescence into a particular uh, mode of behavior modification. And what we failed to do is give them an internal motivating or like the soul shaping that drove them in such a way to be able to say like, hey, I want to figure out how to honor God with my body because I believe that he's worthy of that. Yes. And honor honor God, certainly, but also honor myself and honor others. So good. In a way that treats them, and this connects back to God, in right correspondence with the fact that he or she is created in the image of God. I am created in the image of God. I was made not to merely be animalistic and instinctual, but a little less than the angels, like God, a uh, instrument of righteousness and goodness and flourishing in the world. So yeah, that's a completely different framework and set of questions, it seems to me, than just kind of baseline moralistic, save yourself for marriage, because that's the rule. Yeah. Zachary, you mentioned Ravi Zacharias earlier in our conversation, mm-hmm. and if, if the reporting, uh, it, it CT and Julie Roy's and others was accurate, th- there was a line that that he is rumored to have said, which was, hey, I'm, I'm entitled to these, I'm owed these experiences by God because I've been so faithful or because I've sacrificed so much. 
And again, not not to pick on Robbie, but I think that they're. I mean, let's pick on Robbie. I have I have zero uh, hesitations picking on picking on Robbie. If I'm being honest, on on a on a less serial or maybe you know scale, there sure. there are, there are men who say, "Hey, I have been good, and I don't look at porn, and I don't you yes. know work with other people at the office." Ergo, yes. God owes me X. Yes. What do you say to those people who are like, I have needs and God is obligated to meet those needs in these ways on this timeline? Yeah. Well, with the egregious example of Zacharias in that logic, it shows this, again, disturbing pattern of the way physical abuse and assault in Christian context almost always goes hand in hand with a certain type of spiritual abuse, a leveraging of God towards a man's uh, selfish sexual gratification. And that's a fearful thing, it seems to me, to to be using the Lord's name in vain in that way. But as it relates to the kind of broader question around entitlement, I think what I would say is looking at Scripture, is there any sense in which men can claim an entitlement to sexual fulfillment for acting or behaving in a certain way. I don't see God promising his people any such thing in scripture. I don't see the Christian narrative in any regard being spoken explicitly of as a path to your best sex life. The Bible is not a sex manual. And I think this is more reflective of the cultural context that we are in, hyper-individualistic, kind of post-enlightenment identity is very individual in a way that it hasn't been previously in human history, which is kind of upstream from the sexual revolution. But this whole idea of sexual fulfillment seems to me to be a cultural rather than a biblical idea, but Christians have adopted it into their framework of the way they think about God. And uh, the other thing that I would say is that Jesus was single and celibate. Paul was single and celibate. And there does not seem to be any implication that one is entitled to or has physical needs such that you cannot live as a fulfilled, flourishing, and holy person aside from having access to a sexual outlet in that way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that grow, especially growing up in the seeker movement, you know, in, in the shadow of Willow Creek in Chicago and my early mm. years of ministry at a large seeker church in Detroit, I think that you're right. I think there was a part of people who are like, hey, we really care about evangelism. So how how can we take a kind of a, a really attractive pagan sexual ethic and sprinkle yes. some Bible verses on top of it and then just kind of cut and paste? And you're right. Now, a generation later, we're, we're seeing the fallout of that. Yeah. But I really do appreciate that you talked about both Jesus and Paul. I think that sometimes for us, there's a temptation to believe that if somebody is holy enough to be, uh, you know, immortalized in stained glass they're also an asexual being and you're saying yes that's that's not true and that's not fair no it's not and uh i think it shows a deficient vision of what human flourishing can be like and again a centering of, of erotic experiences as a necessary pinnacle of 
what it means to be human. And Jesus isn't less human than us. He is actually more human. He is the most human being that has ever lived, I argue. And many uh, theologians in the Christian tradition have likewise argued because he lived as we were made to. He did not indulge in dehumanizations of himself or dehumanizations of others, which, of course, is what sin is. Sin is a de- is dehumanization. It's a falling off the path that we were made to live and walk in, and Jesus did not do that. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, imperfectly, we are actually called to imitate Christ, and that includes our sexuality and looking to him as an example of what humanized sexual existence, sexed existence as a sexed being with a sexed body looks like. Zachary put just so, so much thought into this. So grateful for the book. Again, it's called Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality by University Press. Zachary, my my real again, like I read a lot and I don't say this lightly, but this really is a book that I'm recommending to everybody that I know. Like if you're a youth mm. pastor, if you're a young adult, if you work with college guys, if you're an adult pastor, if you're a married man, if you're a single guy, this this is this is worth wrestling down. And it's it's worth asking the hard questions and it's worth leaning into them because I think we have settled for a smaller version of God and a smaller version of maleness and yeah. a smaller version of sexuality than than what Christ invites us to. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. I really appreciate you saying all of that. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for being a part of the conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.